0: Chapter 16 of The Column of Dust by Evelyn Underhill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middeldorf. Chapter 16, Two Lovers. Mortis velvite, brevis est vox, ite venite, aspera vox ite, vox ex venite. Fourteenth-century epigram. It was mid-December, cold and snowy, and the Christmas season was in full swing. Lamptons overflowed with children's books, color books, day books, anthologies, works of vague piety in pretty covers, and reprints of the many classics which all give and none which to receive. There was Law's serious call in pink brocade with pigskin labels, a new and dainty style, as Congreves plays, looking so respectable in pale gray buckroom that old-fashioned mothers often bought the volume for their elder girls. The shelf of illustrated fairy tales for grown-up people was emptied daily, and that containing more solid books for the children's use was nearly as popular. Miss Tyrell and her assistants lived at high pressure, struggling to anticipate the unformulated wants of peevish customers, leading on the more generously disposed from shelf to shelf, probing and, where possible, changing the minds of the many ladies who knew the book they wanted but could remember neither its author nor its name. The more bookish side of the business was now in abeyance. Its frankly popular aspect triumphed. And the rows of old county histories, the early printed classics, the fathers, and the excellent collection of rare and curious memoirs of the old French court were hidden by piles of cheap Ruskins, the new sixpenny Ibsen, for which a great sale was expected, by Airship to Dante's Inferno, the latest romance of the religio scientific school, and the baby Shakespeare. Illustrated in autolithography by members of the International Society, there was an incessant crackling of brown paper as the parcels were folded, tied and heaped upon the floor to await the delivery van. Exercise, mental and physical, hardly ceased, save for the slack interval at lunchtime from ten in the morning until an hour or so after the shutters were put up for the night. Helen Reed, who had been engaged at Constance's suggestion as an extra assistant during the busy weeks, found that she had little time in which to brood upon the destinies of the individual soul. She was continually at the orders of persons who seemed unaware of her intellectual importance and utterly ignored her point of view. Their acceptance of her as an ordinary shop assistant was insulting. The impervious ear which they turned to her advice disappointed her, but the resultant irritation restored her interest in life, and Constance felt that this first step in philanthropy was not to be wholly unsuccessful. It had its disadvantages. She was compelled to act as a buffer between Helen and Mr. John, who detected in Mrs. Reed an unbusinesslike inclination to direct the public attention to those thoughtful works which are always published at net prices— and therefore represent a small profit hardly earned. Your friend, he said, has a very superior, indeed a clever, appearance, which is, of course, a great point in a business of this kind. It is a pity that she is so irresponsible. She seems unable to grasp the importance of pressing the Christmas stock on the public as much as one can. She is inexperienced at present, It isn't an experience, it is idiosyncrasy, replied Lambton. I watched her with an old lady yesterday. I should have made her buy The Gracious Gardens of Our Land, a book that ought to be going very well. Instead of that, Mrs. Reed actually allowed her to order Danby's Development of the Spirit of Man. Single copy, small publisher, net book, hardly pay us for the trouble of supplying it. I'm sure, said Constance, meekly, that she tries to get people the books they really want. One doesn't run a house of this kind on the people who know what they want. One runs it on the people who are persuaded to want what they see. Still, she takes an intelligent interest in literature, and that does encourage the customer. Not the right sort of customer, said Mr. John, crossly. Only the cultured misers who buy cheap copies of good stuff. I hate intelligent assistants. They always try to sell what they like. He walked away, and the watcher asked her, Is there any reason why you should try to sell anything else? She was reminded of Martin's rule, the things one does not love are better left alone. But even he, she supposed, had hardly intended this austere maxim to apply to commercial affairs. In these hasty, busy days with their constant scrimmage between customer, cash box, and order book, it was easy to forget Martin and the impracticable things for which he stood. Even for her lodger and his whims, she had little attention to spare. The active interests of the moment overpowered his influence. His demands upon her senses were easily repelled, his anxious questions seldom touched her mind. Few women can realize the riddle of the universe when confronted by the more pressing problem of how to serve four impatient customers at one and the same time without rousing their tempers or making mistakes in their bills. Miss Tyrell's consciousness was monopolized by the practical and had no time for the real. It danced upon the surface, seized by a myriad things, but seldom resting long on any one. Sometimes as she crept wearily to her lodging she wondered, why did she do it? But the answer to this question awaited her within. The imprisoned watcher, who had begun to suspect in life some constant factor which spirit might attain to understand, was bewildered anew by the baby turmoil, the outrageous insincerities of trade. Peeping through her eyes when she could spare them from the duties of poring over the ledger or hunting through the disordered shelves, he saw this shop this scrap of seething world, at its uttermost point of self-realization. It was become a little throbbing center of those absorbing and scattering forces, that systole and diastole, movement, credit, and debt, which is the expression of life in the body, the business and the love of man, perhaps too in that of God. The shop collected and distributed. It gave, it took, it was fed, it brought forth. It reminded him that all the puzzling knots of infinity had been theaters where this one play was ceaselessly performed. Day after day, carts came to the door and deposited great packages of Christmas stock, repeat orders of the best-selling lines. Then cords were cut, the outer cover, the inner padding of old newspapers removed, and out came the potted thoughts, the little diagrams by which men try to register ideas. There, for a few hours, they lay upon the tables, meek victims of the lust of men, waiting till one out of the thronging purchasers should snatch their bodies or dare to pry into their souls. It was an omnivorous public, and parcels that began with the Red Rose of Eros, often included ghosts, The Bab Ballads, and Alice in Wonderland, and ended with a copy of Holy Living, or The Little Flowers of St. Francis, which was very popular in limp brown suede tied with a triple-knotted string. Thus, the books went out into new lives to form new concepts, new combinations, or at least new ornaments of the more cultured kind, and others poured in, a constant stream, to take their place watcher longed for some equilibrium to be struck for some moment when the ceaseless flux of things should hesitate, if only for an instant, that he might recapture the lost knowledge of that reality which is at rest. But it never ceased. It was life. Suddenly he realized the need, the joy of death, and desired it greatly for these tired people whom he had accepted as his friends. They had, as he noticed. Odd consolations, quaint hints of reality thrust in upon them as they hastened to and fro. In the least expected points, the veil was lifted, and suddenly the light broke through, a strong and shining beam in which the dust danced gaily. The watcher was greatly interested in the case of Phoebe Foster, who came often to the bookshop since Helen had been added to the staff Mrs. Reed's friends vaguely supposed that in enriching her employer they were somehow helping her, a course which offered all the advantages of a bazaar, and none of the disagreeables of unremunerative charity. Phoebe then frequented Lambton's at this season, most often in that slack interval about 2 p.m., when the luncheon table competes successfully with the shop. She seemed of late to be the seat of subtle changes, there was a shifting of values, as if certain forces long suppressed and half forgotten were rising slowly but irresistibly to a domination of her personality. In this conflict, her self-assurance, her intelligent freedom of speech were worsted. Her acquaintances saw with astonishment a new and inarticulate Phoebe emerge. A gentle, shamefaced, and primitive thing, who was no longer able to speak of the unspeakable with the scientific indifference which is proper to her type. Muriel, who was distressed by her friend's condition, attributed it to some obscure psychic disease, to the sudden uprush into conscious life of unfortunate ancestral traits latent in the subliminal field. It is, she said, a case of pernicious atavism, all the more acute because her education has held it in check so long. Expert opinion is not always correct. About a week before Christmas, Phoebe came to the bookshop. There was upon her face a bashful radiance which seemed to mark a new stage in her infirmity. It was like the humble yet fiery joy which might invest the newly inspired apostle of some singularly ecstatic faith. She kissed Constance and Helen with fervor in spite of the disapproving presence of Mr. John. How splendid it is, she said, to be a woman, Helen replied with a touch of her old solemnity. I cannot attribute great importance to the accident of sex. Oh, can't you, exclaimed Phoebe. I can, an enormous importance. It is more than important, really. It is deeply and wonderfully significant, mysterious almost, Constance said. Yes, that's true. Horribly mysterious. Full of splendor and full of evil, too. Phoebe looked at her with soft eyes that were full of a slightly patronizing sympathy and spoke in the quiet, authoritative tone of a person who is quite sure of her ground. No, she said, not evil. That's a mistake. In itself it is wholly beautiful because it's a vital, unchangeable thing, much too noble and beautiful to be evil as well. I hope, said Mrs. Reed, that you are not going to be led away by merely sentimental views of life. Some sentiments count, replied Phoebe obstinately. They arise in the soul and show one the meaning of things, and there is a strange enhancement of life that comes from them, from realizing one's essential womanhood. She looked at the other woman appealingly. "'You don't know,' she said, "'or you would have to agree with me. "'I wish I could describe it to you. "'It is extraordinarily interesting. "'I mean, of course, from the psychological point of view.' "'Helen observed, "'These transitory ecstasies are seldom important to the soul.' "'Oh, not transitory,' answered Phoebe. "'I knew you did not understand. "'This is true.' One can always tell the difference, at least I can. Nothing else matters. It changes the values of life, makes everything perfectly plain. She thought that she saw signs of amusement on Constance's face, blushed, and added hastily, as one penetrates below appearance. It is in the simple and elementary things that one finds the deepest metaphysical meaning, I think. And then... Miss Tyrell did not hear the end of the sentence. The shop door had been pushed open, the bell rang, and she turned automatically to attend to the incoming customer. He stood for a moment with the pale light behind him, staring into the shop. She stared back at him, vaguely conscious of the arrival of some familiar, unexpected thing, whilst he continued his keen peering into the dimness, as if his coming had some finer objective than the mere spending of money and garnering up of books. The Watcher, too, moved eagerly in her mind as to the encounter of a friend, and before she had time to sift these sensations, Martin had discovered her and taken her hand. She said, You? Here? In a city? It's incredible, he answered. I? In a city? Well, why not? There's a hiding place for everything here. Why have you come? he said in a lower tone. Because I dared not wait longer. She looked at him then. Her first thought was that he was curiously alive, with a white and ardent life which made the spirits of her companions seem but smoldering flames. Or next, that he was very near to death. He met her eyes. I see, he observed, that you have guessed it. I am going. Is it not splendid so quickly? It came on me suddenly, and I knew that there was no mistake. She saw the unpeopled hills, the deserted shrine, the extinguished light, the cup unguarded and alone, and exclaimed, No, you, you cannot go. You must not. Needs must when marching orders come. But you, with a guardianship that cannot be forsaken, that you should be snatched. I, too. How cruel it is! We are all slaves to this. Slaves, he said? Slaves to death? What a strange idea. Why, it is our one earnest of liberty. Without that, how could we be more than self-conscious mildew, cumbering the wholesome surfaces of things. And it is actively beneficent, too, the way, the truth, the life, the real life, not the dream. It was through death that the cup came. It is the true discipline of the secret. But not for all. For all, he answered. Each of us lives toward that initiation. Every instant of our day it is going on. We cannot be deprived of it. We cannot miss it. However stupid and cowardly, however evil we may be. And you are glad to go? You with your wonderful life? Why, yes. There was a wise physician once who said, The misery of immortality in the flesh he undertook not that was immortal. So how could we want it? How awful a fate! to wait the home-going ship, even in the fortunate isles, and never sight it. The wandering Jew is really the only denizen of the only hell. But you, so soon, why is it? I always knew that it would not be long, and this winter the snows have been heavy. It has been an arctic business there these many weeks, an everlasting fight with the drifts, and plenty of rescue work among the flocks in evil nights of the storm. I've come near to anticipating my burial many a time, and it has put on the clock rather quickly, that is all. Is it inevitable? Are you sure? He answered mockingly. Do you wish to hear the name that is given to this particular method of crumbling? Then she saw with dismay the purest spot in her world shine out, adorable, only to be snatched from her. The watcher exclaimed, What? Will you now clutch at the dying and risk the blackness and the pain? She turned from him and considered anew the radiant face of Martin, that thin and eager face smiling into the very eyes of corruption. She looked with him and saw death, the faithful servant of true lovers, preparing the bridal chamber of the soul. Martin leaned forward with a gesture of gratitude and ecstasy to the fruition of his long desire. He was glancing about him now, full of the zest for little things which is peculiar to the utterly detached. He said, So, this is the place, I have often thought of it, and of you since the day on which you came. Helen and Phoebe were looking at him with a very human curiosity, for this was the first time that they had detected Miss Tyrell in the possession of a friend outside the limits of their own set. Phoebe said to Mrs. Reed, Do you think? I wonder. She has never mentioned him. But they seem to be great friends. It would be so nice. I am sure that her life is not a very happy one. Helen replied, No, but no life is really happy. Oh, it may be, it can be, exclaimed Phoebe quickly and clumsily. If you give yourself, give yourself altogether, I mean, and join in, then you find your place and are at peace. Mrs. Reed received these words in silence. They were delivered with an accent of authority, which she disliked. But Martin, who had heard them, turned and smiled Phoebe smiled back. There seemed instantly some link established between them, as if they had common possession of a secret which the others sought in vain. Yes, he said, that is it. It seems such a simple recipe, doesn't it, when once one has tried it. It's wonderful. It transforms the world. Yes, it really does fulfill the whole claim of the philosopher's stone. It confers eternal youth, Transmutes dull matter, turns the dust to gold. Mrs. Reed said with eagerness, You are evidently interested in alchemy. Martin, who was considering Phoebe's gentle and radiant face with approval, answered indifferently, Sometimes its language is useful and approximates to the truth. Phoebe interrupted him, But truth isn't words. It's not definite and discoverable. It is just a new way of seeing the ordinary things. Martin said, yes, the way of love, that's all. Phoebe, the word once mentioned, seemed to experience a certain relief. She looked at Constance, as if there, too, she might expect a measure of comprehension. I came to tell you something, Phoebe said, only you wouldn't understand me. I'm going to be married. The watcher muttered, "Another link to be torn apart, another pain. How mad you are!" Of course," continued Phoebe hastily, "you understand I would not do it in the ordinary, conventional way. That would be disgusting. It is because we feel the inner, personal link so strongly, because I have become convinced that we complete each other's lives. If we fell out of love, we should separate. I told Freddie that." A mere material prolongation of a tie whose reality is gone would become blasphemous, the sin against Eros. I suppose, observed Martin, that by falling out of love you really mean falling out of passion, don't you? How can one fall out of love any more than one can fall out of heaven? It may be very tiresome, very onerous, generally is, I think, in the end. But it clings tight You carry it with you, even to the deeps, and it flames up when it is wanted. Flamma Eterne Caritatis. Yes, I think, I mean, I'm sure, it is like that, really, replied Phoebe, addressing him directly and in a very low voice. The shop bell rang again, and she became alert. I expect that must be Freddy, she said, He promised to call for me at half-past two. Mr. Burroughs entered. He bore himself with a new possessive air, at once absurd, charming, and pathetic. The ladies congratulated him, and he answered with conviction that he was a lucky fellow. I've got a taxi at the door, he said, and I thought, Phoebe, that we might run down to the palace and hear the new singing girl. She's got a matinee today, and then tea at the Carlton, and stroll home in the dusk. That is, of course, if you were quite sure you'd like it. Helen, who knew Miss Foster's tastes, waited with interest for her reply. But Phoebe agreed with enthusiasm. She was radiant, plainly eager to be gone. Freddy waited upon her with great care and gentleness, hooked her fur coat, adjusted her muff chain comfortably beneath the collar, She accepted his ministrations with obvious pride. Martin nodded at their departing figures and observed, That's all right, the simple but most excellent way. Later on it will hurt, and then her chance will come. She will emerge, a completed animal or a transfigured saint. Constance said in a low tone, Oh, why did I miss it? That's the way in, to give up one's will to be touched like that, with respect by someone who cares. He answered, It is very agreeable, but for some there is a better and a harder way. End of chapter 16